You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. Our mission is to bring the hope of Jesus to Jaffrey and beyond. We are here to know Christ, grow in Christ, and serve others. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. So I know last Sunday was Easter. And now we come to this time of of what now? What's next? What happens next in the story of God? Now that Jesus has resurrected, what is it that we celebrate this Sunday? What is it that we go on through? How do we get to today? You know, how is it that we get to 2023 and we're all here at the church doing church in this modern age? How is it that we get to this point? And then how is it that we organize ourselves? How is it that we find uh, there's elders and deacons and pastors and what is that, who is that, uh, and all of those things. I'm going to try to uh, scratch the surface of that answer to you today a little bit as we break apart what the church is. So I hope that will be encouraging to you and really help you grasp what it is we're doing here this morning and our aim and goal for the church moving forward, or I would rather say God's aim for the church that he has for us as Hope Fellowship Church moving forward. And so I'm going to begin with prayer, uh, and then we're going we're gonna to jump into this. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for those requests that were lifted up. We thank you for the words of our, our brother Lars here as he just shared about the reminder that your spirit is with us, your spirit is helping us, your spirit is comforting us, your spirit is guiding us in the way of all truth. God, we need your spirit this morning. We thank you, Lord, as we have recognized the presence of, of, of your spirit among us as we've gathered here this morning. We've not forsaken the assembly of ourselves together, but we have gathered and we have lifted your praises. We have prayed to you and we are speaking to you now. God, I pray over the next few moments that we have together that you would speak to us through your word and through your truth and you would confirm within us the mission of the church, the desire for us to give you praise and yet to spread your message, your gospel truth, your salvation, your word of salvation across the globe, that we would go and make disciples of all nations. God, help us with that. Bless these people here today. They've they've come out on a Sunday. It's busy, life is crazy. Kids can be challenging life. No matter where we are, what stage of it that we are in, there are so many things that come against us. And I pray today would be a moment of silence, of quietness, of of listening to God and what you would have us to hear from you this morning. I pray that you would bless this church and you would bless these people. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're opening up nominations. What that means is there are uh, some slips in the back underneath the giving boxes and on the welcome table and on the, in the foyer and some pens nearby. And if you would like to nominate someone for an elder or like to nominate someone for the office of a deacon, uh, you may nominate their name and then the elders and others will look through those names and talk to them. And then there's a, a, there's a process of training, walking through a, a study together as they walk through that study and then eventually uh, to be called to be an elder or a deacon. So there's quite the process that goes into it, but the beginning initial phase is thinking about Who is it that God is calling among us to become and to step into the role of a leader at this church, an elder or a deacon and what that means? And so hopefully we'll get to that somewhat. But as I began, 
I began with a statement that elders and deacons, the two teams of leaders here at this church that we believe that we find in the New Testament, those two teams, uh, those elders, those deacons are appointed to serve by leading the church of God to continue the mission from Jesus Christ until his return. And that's a key point there from this what now, from Jesus Christ. Now that Jesus has risen, we're going to look at question number one, this what now. Now that Jesus has risen, what do we do now? Ultimately, that's what we find, or I find myself in that place after Easter Sunday. We talked about the resurrection. We talked about him rising from the dead. And, and then maybe at times we look at this Sunday, his ascension or his appearances, or as Lars mentioned, the Holy Spirit that comes. And so as we think through, as scripture, to, as scripture lays out for us, that Jesus has come in the incarnation at Christmas. He lives a regular life in some ways living among us just as a normal human being and yet being fully God and fully man, being not normal in any way. And yet as he lived this normal life, just waking up, sleeping, eating food, living a human existence here on earth, yet then suffering and, and going to the cross, dying on that, grave, uh, on that cross and then being buried in the grave, that he has risen and then for 40 days he appears to many and he goes and visits and he appears to the disciples at a couple different times. You'll see that in Luke and, and in the Gospels and you'll see different times when he appears to those in, in this verification of his resurrected state that he is alive. Paul writes about that if you and others write about that if you, if you want to, to know if Jesus has risen, go talk to the people that he appeared to because in the time that they were writing those things, those people were still alive and giving eyewitness accounts of when they saw the risen Lord. And so we celebrate that moment and yet we come to a very important moment in Acts chapter one. We would say in some ways in Acts one and two, the birth of the church. Acts one, verse four and eight uh, say, says this, Acts 1, verse 4 through 8. If your pastor can find the passage, he will read it. <laughs> there we go. That's always my nightmare. I have this recurring nightmare. I'm just going to share it with you. It wasn't in my notes. Occasionally, I have a recurring nightmare, and I'm preaching, and I can't find the passage, and it's over and over in time, and I'm saying it, and it's just this constant recurring thing, and I'm looking for the passage, and I cannot find it, and I wake up in cold sweats, okay? But I have found the passage, and we are going to read it, okay? I know it's on the screen, but I like to read it from, you know, a leather-bound Bible, because that's more spiritual. So, Acts 1, verse 4 uh, says, and while they were staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. This is the opening of Acts, kind of part two of the story of Jesus, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which is the Lord we're just talking about. Wait for the promise, this promised helper, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, you, there is this, this aspect that there is something coming. The Holy Spirit will come, and it will be different than what it was before, and yet the same. The Spirit of Christ will be with you. 
So when they had come together, verse six, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons. The father is fixed by his own authority. Then look at verse eight, a verse that we share very often. In fact, when Bob O'Brien and the mission team gets up here, they'll often remind you of Acts 1.8. It's kind of our mission statement for the church. And he says in verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we have this this recognition of this expansiveness of the gospel where Jesus has come and risen. That was this watershed moment where now there will be like a funnel that is extending outward to the entire world from that place where life will come pouring out of Jerusalem to the world. Christ has risen and ascended, but as Lars was saying, it is better now that the Spirit is with us, for now the Spirit of Christ can be within us. And now, Pentecost will come in Acts chapter 2, for this power will fall. In Acts 2, verse 1 through 8, I'm not going to read the whole passage. This is going to be kind of a message where you're going to be following along with me. I'll be referencing a few verses here and there as we look at this topic today. But when the day of Pentecost arrived, Acts 2, uh, verse 1, they were all together in one place. Then suddenly there came from heaven like the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared and rested upon them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then they began speaking and teaching and prophesying the truth of the gospel to all kinds of nations. You'll look in verse 9, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, all these other places. And, and, and the mighty works of God were being presented. Then Peter preaches this amazing sermon. It's an incredible sermon because 3,000 people are baptized at the end of it. right? But really this ends of believe, repent, and believe the gospel and be baptized and receive the Spirit. There's this beautiful explosion of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant age that is coming. This power, this ascension, there's now Pentecost. The power has come that Jesus has foretold. And then we see in Acts 2, verse 42, that that wasn't the end. It wasn't like, okay, great, we've got a power. Well, what do we do? Now we meet together. Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the breaking and bread and the prayers. And they gathered together constantly in different homes and in synagogues in the region. Then the Pentecost spread from there. From Acts 2, you have the church growing in great number. And then them trying to, the apostles trying to direct and organize the growing number. But in Acts 2, you have this Jewish Pentecost we spoke about. Acts 8, you have this Samaritan Pentecost where the Holy Spirit falls upon them. Acts 10, you have what's called as the Gentile Pentecost where now the Holy Spirit falls upon Gentiles outside of Jerusalem in a different place. So now the Holy Spirit has fallen upon this cross-section of humanity in equal measure. And then in Acts 19, you have this unique story of the Ephesians Pentecost in some way where these disciples of John the Baptist were not aware that the Spirit had come. The Spirit falls upon them. So now you have this, in a way, this equal distribution of the Holy Spirit versus just one group saying, we receive the Holy Spirit, but your group hasn't. Now Jews, Gentiles, disciples, all sorts of people have received this extraordinary falling of the Spirit and filling of the Spirit to now then go out from there. This is the birth of the church, the explosion of the church, 
the missionary movements that go out from this land to the corners of the globe, where Paul has his missionary journeys as he's called by God and uniquely gifted to plant churches and spread the gospel. They begin to spread out from there, but not, we often think of Paul as we read through the book of Acts, we can trace his three major missionary movements and journeys as they're called throughout the Mediterranean region as he goes to Thessalonica and Ephesus and Corinth and such, writes letters to each of them as we read in the New Testament that help to organize the church. But we also forget that the apostles were there and they also went out throughout church history. We don't read about it in the scriptures per se as to the exact stories of each of the apostles. Uh, But church history has recorded for us uh, a great number of information about where they went. And there's just a few. It says Andrew uh, is said to have gone to many of the Greek communities and and was martyred at Patras in Asia Minor out there. Uh, Philip went to Carthage of northern Africa. Simon, the zealot, is said to have traveled all the way to Persia, bringing the kingdom of God, the gospel there. Thomas, very well known and very well documented, uh, documented in ancient church history is that Thomas uh, led missionary efforts into India and to, um, I think it's Milapur, India is in fact where many, I believe it is where you can find what is supposedly, it is his grave there in India. Uh, Matthew is said to have been martyred in Ethiopia. Uh, Judas Thaddeus, uh, St. Jude, as some would say, would, uh, uh, he is revered by the Armenian church, as many would call him the apostle to the Armenians. Uh, others, Barnabas, Apollos, these kind of not apostles, but these, these groups that traveled with them. Uh, Timothy and Titus, this you could say second generation uh, of passing down the, the doctrine and the teaching of the apostles to this next group. This, we have 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, these young men who were being taught by the apostles, Paul and others, and then starting churches, leading churches, and growing these movements in this area. And so I don't know about you, but when you read this, it's extremely exciting. And as you read through the book of Acts, I've been studying it recently and found it to be so encouraging to me as I see God start with something so small and minuscule and yet today reaches us here in Jaffer, New Hampshire, 2023. But I don't know if you've ever felt this before where maybe you felt that sense of what the disciples might have felt that, that day. Jesus has risen from the dead. Then he says, hey guys, wait because I'm going to give you power, but then he leaves and ascends, and you're like, well, what now? You know, what, how do we do this exactly, you know? Have you ever been handed the keys to a car, right, when you first learned to drive, and you were driving out of the driveway thinking, like, they're just letting me go out by myself, you know? You know that feeling of independence? Give you the keys to the car, and all right, I'll see you when you get back, right? And you're like, this is amazing, you know, I just leave and I can come back when I go. Or um, you remember kind of the feeling of maybe for you parents, I remember the feeling of when I brought home our first child, when Char, she's sitting, she's seven years old now, but when you bring her home from the hospital, I, I can still remember the feeling of I have no idea what I'm doing, right? Do you know what I'm saying? And like we often joke that kids don't come with instruction manuals. You know what I mean? Like you don't know exactly what to do. 
I didn't really know how to do a diaper very well. I didn't know what to do when the baby cries incessantly and all these things. They, and then all the nurses like, oh, you'll be fine, you know? And you're walking out of the hospital like, are you, are you sure? You just let us go? Like, is there any, are, do we need to check in on things? Like, what else should I know? And they're like, no, just leave. Get it. You've been here for three days. Goodness, get out of here. And they're trying to get the next person. I'm just like nervous. And by the third kid, I'm just like, whatever, you know, it's fine. No cares, you know. But by the first, I'm like so nervous. At least I was. I know Jamie had everything under control, but I was like not sure what's going on. I barely knew how to put the car seat in. I'm trying to figure that out. I'm like driving nice and slowly down the road because you don't want to. And I remember getting home and being like, is this it? Like, what do we do now? Like, our life is completely different. Now that I have this little baby, and then I just like, you know, I just remember this feeling of like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kind of scared and nervous, and yet there's extraordinary blessing that's been given to me and my family, and I'm excited, but I, I don't know where to go. I'm, I'm kind of feeling a little lost. I imagine the disciples would feel like that. I think I've even felt like that pastoring sometimes. <laughs> Maybe you do in your job sometimes. It's kind of one of those jokes like you're just kind of hoping nobody figures out that you don't actually know what you're doing, right? So you just, you be confident in what you're doing and everyone will go along and play the game with you, right? You know, have you ever felt that? There are times, especially early on in my mystery, but I would say every year, every week maybe, I, I still come in and be like, do they realize that I'm just the same and I don't really know what I'm doing, you know? And, and there's that sense where I think we've never arrived in our sphere of influence and, and work and leadership or whatever we do. And there are many times where we're faced with this conundrum, this, this, this future before us that seems so daunting and, ex- and extraordinary. And the birth of the church and the power of God that God has given us and that, the, that has now been passed down to us, how the church comes to exist today, how we now meet in this place, singing praises. We now meet, we gather together, we sing praises, we pray together, we worship, we fellowship. These are things the early church did. Yes, in a different cultural way, but in the same manner and same way. The birth of the church and ultimately the same thing that was with all of us and was with them is the power of the Holy Spirit. Is there guiding us, comforting us, illuminating our understanding to the scripture, and then spiritually empowering us to be the church? Okay, so that's not changed. The church and the Holy Spirit. But as we think about that Jesus Christ until his return, we think about the next question, number two. What are we doing? Right, what, what are we doing though? Like we're here, we're meeting, but yet what is the goal? What's the purpose of what we're here and called to do? Well, Matthew 28, a very well-known passage as well, gives us a little bit of the mission, or you could say kind of the foundational purpose that the church exists. What is that purpose? Well, Jesus is speaking to his apostles before he ascends, and he says, go. This is verse 18, sorry, verse 18 says, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. An amazing statement. He says right off the bat, go, right? We are to go 
And do what? Well, we're to go and make disciples of all nations all over the globe. This message will spread to the corners of the globe, to the ends of the earth. We are to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are to teach them. We don't just say, hey, Easter Sunday, resurrected, all right, get out there, see you later. No, it's the sense now you have come into a group of people where you can grow up in Christ together as a community. You're not there on your own doing this church thing by yourself. You're in a community of people who are all journeying together. And then there is this teaching. There is a teaching to observe everything that Jesus has taught us. And then everything he has taught the apostles. The apostles have recorded into the scripture. And now we study and teach those things back to you as leaders in the church. It's an extraordinary cycle. You could say, you know, making disciples who make disciples. We make disciples, not just converts. That's what the church is about, right? And here, hope, he has given us this message of know, grow, serve, this knowing Christ. So we are growing up in Christ. So we may serve and do him and work out of the overflow of love that we have for Christ. It's this beautiful picture of this process of life, which we maybe just call church. And yet, who is called to do this? So this is that sense of what are we to do now, and then what are we doing, this great commission that we're to go and make disciples, and yet, who is supposed to be doing this? Like, like who and how? Do you ever ask these kinds of questions? And maybe it's just me. That we do the same thing every week. Well, why, who, what, how? These are questions that are good to ask. If you turn to 1 Timothy 3, we'll look at this chapter i going to probably read the whole chapter, but in particular, I want to start in verse 14. As elders and deacons, we spend a lot of time studying 1 Timothy 3, the beginning of 1 Timothy 3, as it gives us the qualifications for, for elders and deacons. But in verse 14, it talks to, talks to us about, kind of in a sense, of why Paul is writing this. Look at it, 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. Paul is saying this to a younger man, Timothy kind of his disciple, his, prote- his protege, you could say. First Timothy 3, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things so that, I love that. Do you, I mean, sometimes we just wish the writer would come out and tell us. Well, he does. Paul's writing this letter, why? Well, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. Or some of your translations might read, so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of the gospel. Speaking of Jesus, that Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is that, here this concept of, well, who is supposed to be doing this? Who is going about this mission and carrying on the message of Jesus? Well, ultimately, the church is to be doing this. And the church is specifically focused here on this passage. Well, Paul's writing to Timothy saying that he's doing this because he's writing these things so that you may know what you're supposed to do. So that you may know how to conduct yourself. So you may know how to operate and how to behave in the age that you live in. 
But he says, well, who? Well, the church. And I love this idea, this church. Like, what's a church? We talk about this a lot. What is a church? What is a church? Church takes on many forms in many cultures in many places in many times. But what is a church fun, fun, fundamentally? Well, there are many things. But here, Paul reminds us, well, that a church is a household, but it is specifically a, a group, an entity, a living organism that upholds the truth of God. That it is something as like a pillar and a buttress that upholds. It is as if it is something like this beam right here, this solid beam right here. I was here when they built this church. This is a, I don't know, steel beam right here and a steel beam right here. If those steel beams were to crumble down, we would be in big trouble. I'll tell you that, right? This, these steel beams uphold the roof above our heads, and this whole building, this is the sense that we are be, we've been given as the church, that we are the church of the living God. The church is a pillar of the very truth. It's a pillar of the truth. And it, trying to help us grasp this, that the church upholds the truth in a culture that is full of deception and lies. John Mark Comer writes in his book, Live No Lies. He's speaking about truth and lies. And, and he, he, we can even ask that question that Pilate asked. Well, what is truth, right? Pilate asked that of Jesus when he's questioning them. What is truth? And John Mark Comer says, he points out an interesting observation. He says that, that lies are the devil's primary method of enslaving human beings in a vicious cycle of ruin. Lies are the primary method in which Satan deceives you and ensnares you and enslaves you. That your life is being lived for a lie. This is why Jesus came as a rabbi or a teacher. Have you, often, have you ever thought of that? Jesus comes not as the Jewish people were hoping for him to come. As a warrior conquering military leader to take over the world through military force and might and restore the kingdom of God in its physical state as they were hoping, just like King David did, Jesus would do in the same manner. Now he did that, but in a different way than they were expecting. But notice Jesus comes as a what? He comes as a teacher. He comes as a rabbi. He comes as someone who speaks truth. And what is a teacher? Well, he says a, a teacher is a moral cartographer. And maybe I just like this because I was a teacher and so it sounds cool to talk about something basic in really uh, awesome terms, all right? But think about it. A, a teacher is a moral cartographer, someone who maps morality in a proper way. Teachers give us the mental maps to reality. And in doing so, they set us free to live in congruence with how life actually works. You ever thought about that? The importance of a teacher to speak truth so that we recognize the truth, which is Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus comes to give us the truth so we can map properly the world in its way that it exists so that we can live in congruence with truth and find life, <laughs> find Jesus. He comes to teach, 
to teach us the truth. And again, I keep mentioning it, but Lars mentioned earlier that the Holy Spirit has come to guide us in the way of all truth. That's what Lars is sharing. To guide us in the way of truth, right? The Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the Holy Spirit, the sense comes, right? And yet there are so many lies that we face every day around our lives. And I'm just not sure if we as the church recognize the importance that our position as a group really holds. Do you recognize that your attendance in this very place today speaks volumes into the darkness of the world? That just your coming together as a living organism and a functional, yes, framework of an organization, that you are helping here to speak truth into a dark place. There are so many lies in today's world about, uh, about all sorts of cheap counterfeits. A world putting their faith in man's ideas, man's maps to chart the world and the trajectory that we find through the place and yet we find that we have no idea where we're going apart from Christ. Comer goes on as he quotes Willard in another observation as they describe this idea of the locations of truth that we find today. In today's world, especially as the West has secularized things, the locus points of authority moved from God, scripture, and the church to today, enlightenment-based triad of science, research, and the university. One day, this scripture gave for us the sense of where is it that we find truth in the world? We find truth through his word and through his spirit and through the message of Jesus, of who we are and who God is and what this world is all about. Why am I here? The word tells us. And yet when we move from that, from the locus of of authority, moves from God, scripture, and the church, it moves from an enlightenment-based theory of, of science is God. Research is the data and the book that we live our lives on. And the university is the place in which projects that and teaches it out into society. Or you could say maybe more modern ways of, of media that gets it out nowadays in different ways. But that's this, this change and this shift that has happened. And now why it is so often that we feel like we live in a secularized culture because that triad of truth has changed. See, ultimately, I think we, we forget the importance of what church is all about. I forget, I think we, we, we feel like maybe at times we are here playing church. Your kids play stuff sometimes, right? My kids play house. Uh, they play doctor. They play school. They play pretend for fun, right? That's part of like what it means to be a kid, to play. I, I saw one video of this little kid in a bathroom and he was playing church and he had filled up the bathtub. I don't know if you've seen this. He has the bathtub filled up. He's in this like white t-shirt, little kid. And uh, he asks his mom to come and he has all his stuffies in there, like a little church, his stuffed animals. And he's having a baptism service for the stuffed animals. So I was like, that kid's awesome. Future pastor right there. But he's taking his stuffed animals, baptizing them in the tub, right? And it's like this, they play church like it's a game, right? Like this isn't a game. Church isn't just like, you know, a little social club. This is something that truly upholds the truth in this world. How is it that a dying world living in darkness knows anything about the truth? If nobody goes and tells them, if nobody goes, if the church doesn't, uh, beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, right? Beautiful are those feet and the church are those feet. 
The world is out there fumbling in the dark, grasping for truth, believing lies, uh, these, these man-made truths about identity and gender, heaven and hell, salvation. What is my purpose on this earth? Truth about life and death are found where? They're found in the church. This is God's idea. This is God's way of spreading the gospel throughout the world. The church has a job to do, and it matters a great deal. And the leaders of the church are not to be people who peddle the gospel. As, 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 uh, as um, Paul writes in Corinthians, that we are no mere peddlers of the word. We're not here to sell you a message in order to make you feel better or to get something for ourselves, or to manipulate people to do what we want. We are to be a group of people, the pillars and the mainstays that support the very truth of God on this planet. And we are doing that by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are the load-bearing wall of the existence that is found in the people of God. Christ, though, is the foundation, I understand that. For in fact, we don't have time today, but in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, it talks about the mystery of godliness. And the very mystery of godliness, the way that we are being transformed is through the foundation of Christ. That he came, it says this little hymn. In fact, if you want to, many believe it's an early church hymn, which is 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. It talks about, uh, sorry, verse 316 is this idea of this hymn that is given to us. He's manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, this early church creed of what it is that we believe. What we confess there is in Christ. We are filled with the, the spirit and we walk in the truth and we proclaim it. But yet, how does this work? The next question we have ultimately in this sense is how does this work? Some of you are very linear kinds of people. And I know personalities have tendencies here where some enjoy when uh, rules are clearly communicated. And maybe I won't ask you to raise your hand, but sometimes what I find in different couples is one is either or. The one is there's a rule follower in the group and there's a rule breaker in the group, right? Uh, there's always these kinds of people who enjoy when they come to a place, they like that there's signs telling them where to go, what to do, what not to do. There's people who view the speed as a limit and a rule and others of you who view the speed as a suggestion, right? You know? And just, it's kind of, you know, one of those things that just depends on the day, you know, right? Uh, And so there are types of personalities. I understand that sometimes gravitate towards certain passages of scripture. And then when we talk about organization and we talk about formality and rules and ways, some of you are like glazing over like that is the most boring thing ever. And I understand that can be hard, but if you just... We can't ignore all of 1 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy, the book of Titus where it talks about qualifications for elders and deacons. Paul is telling us in verse 15 of 1 Timothy 3, if I delay, I'm writing these things so that you may know how you ought to behave. I want you to know how the church ought to conduct itself. I want you to know how to properly behave within the household of God. This isn't a reason the way we organize ourselves is not just something we made up on the spot. It's something that we study diligently from the scripture to discover what is it that God has given us. And so at hope we have this sense of, in 1 Timothy 3, there are two main groups given to us. 
If you look at verses one through seven, it talks about the qualifications for overseers. This is the word elders or presbytists or uh, episcopi, this idea of elders, bishops, overseers, and these groups pastor. That is the word poimen, the sense of that these groups pastor the church. And so the way we look at leadership among the church is that there are two main teams, the teams of elders and the teams of deacons, both having their literal qualifications listed in the Bible. Did you ever show up for a job and then I give you your job description and it being a chapter from the Bible, <laughs> okay? That's what it's like to be an elder or a deacon. Your job description is given to you in the Bible. It's incredibly lofty. There's this sense, and yet it's very much not a description. And in some ways, it's not really a, a direction. It's a character list. These overseers are, are to be above reproach. A husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. They're not to be a drunkard. They are to be not violent, but gentle. Not to be quarrelsome. They're not to be lovers of money. They must manage their own households well with all dignity, keeping children submissive. And if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how must he care for God's church? You see what I'm saying here is that the character qualities here are what are described and lifted high above everything else. Competence and charisma and extraordinary gifting are not listed when we're talking about elders and deacons. Isn't that kind of interesting? It's not about how good you are of a preacher. It's not about how uh, enigmatic or how people are drawn to you as a leader. What's given is what's your character? What, what spiritual fruit are you bearing? That's what is lifted high above all of these things. And here at Hope, we desire to be a group as imperfect as we are, a group that is seeking to model these things in our lives as a team. I am an elder here at this church, and yet I find myself as a pastor elder, often being the voice for the elders. Some would even say as Peter was the voice of the disciples. We have this principle that we find throughout scripture as the first among equals. I am equal to the other elders, and yet there is often someone who takes that point position where the first among equals takes the burden of leading, preaching, and teaching God's word. And that becomes, in a sense, the voice for the elders. And the deacons operate as a team as well of equals and uh, operate in this team mentality. And they serve the church in the physical manners and assist, and assist the elders in the work of the ministry and serve the physical needs of the church while the, the elders are here to oversee and shepherd and pastor your spiritual needs. That is our first job and our first direction, to oversee and shepherd the flock. And we see that from 1 Peter 5. Look at 1 Peter 5. And we're gonna be running through this last part here real quickly. 1 Peter 5, verse one. Peter is speaking here to the elders. And he writes... So I exhort the elders, notice plural, not just singular. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God, verse two. Is that, I love that. In some ways you could say lead the flock of God as a shepherd would do. Protecting, caring, 
comforting, nurturing, feeding my lambs, as Jesus said to Peter. Peter now says to us, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Uh, Exercising oversight, protect, administrate, oversee. But be careful, be careful. You don't do this under compulsion, but you do it willingly as God would have you and not for shameful, selfish gain, but eagerly. Verse three would say, not domineering over those in your charge, but be an example of the flock, right? And when the chief shepherd appears, uh uh-oh, the chief shepherd, there's another one. I thought we were the shepherds. (laughs) No, 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 that's the whole point. We often say this as an elder team. We're shepherds, we are the under shepherds of the chief shepherd. We're all being shepherded by Jesus. I am no greater than any one of you. I have not reached this special level where now I do not need to be shepherded. No, more so, I need accountability maybe more than others for there are temptations to power, temptations in places of leadership that are not present for everyone else. And I need prayer, the elders need prayer, the deacons need prayer, that we would be kept from temptation, we would be kept from the evil one and that we would find a way to serve under the chief shepherd until he appears. Verse five says, likewise you are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves with all humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's what I wanna close with. The elders and deacons in this place, we are called to follow that, to shepherd under the chief shepherd, and yet reminded that this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Look at Mark nine. What does this look like? Because ultimately what this looks like is in Mark 9, verse 35. This is when Jesus is um, talking about with the disciples where they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Ever had that? (laughs) Who's the greatest among us? Who's the most important? Verse 35, Mark 9 says, and he sat them down, he called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. If anyone's gonna be first here, they gotta learn to be last. And they gotta learn to be a servant. And ultimately, then he talks about how he takes a child and he brings a child into his midst. A a lowly little child. If you are not able to care and love a small child, how dare you think you can be the first and the greatest among his church? You need to learn to care for the weakest and the smallest and those who cannot care for themselves. You learn to serve them first. Then you can be a servant leader. And then he goes on in chapter 10. In fact, he addresses a rich young man. And the rich young man thinks he's got everything he needs. And Jesus says, but many who are first will be last. And the last will be first. And then Mark 10, verses really 35 through 45. And I just want to read verses 42, 43 through 45. But this is, the, again, the similar situation. James and John come to Jesus. His, their mother's there too, and they make a request. Hey, Jesus, can we be on your right hand and on your left hand when we get to the kingdom of God? May we serve as your closest confidants. May we be the greatest among the disciples. And we often scoff at these guys for asking that, but we ask this all the time. Power, this aspect of wanting to be great, is something within all of us. And I don't know the, the intentionality among it, but Jesus says, are you sure you want that? That place of prominence among my kingdom? For if you do, you will have to drink the cup of suffering that I'm about to drink. And they say, I- I'm willing to drink that cup. 
I'm not sure if they knew what they were getting themselves into, for almost most of the apostles were martyred. I believe John potentially was one of the only ones that said to have lived to an old age, but many of them were martyred. And yet we see here in Mark 10, verses 42, Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He's saying, look, you know what secular leadership looks like. Do you know what hustle culture is in our culture today? (laughs) You gotta work hard 24-7, put on more, more, more in order to lead and take over and control the world. It's all at your fingertips. Do whatever you want. This sense of power, this sense of intensity that I can take over the world. I can be whatever I wanna be. Every leader is telling you to constantly be more, be louder, be greater, be stronger, be faster, do more, lead greater, Lead, lead, lead in this way of outward, project yourself, influence the world, everyone look at me. (laughs) This is the great secular version of leadership that we see in today, a secular version there in this sense, and Jesus flips it on on the side. He says, "You, you know the Gentiles lord it over others. Their great ones exercise authority and strength over them. He says, hey, copy them, is that what he says? Next verse 43 says, but it shall not be so among you. You know that's what they do. That is not what you're to do. They literally contrast it. More, it cannot get more black and white than that. You know how people lord authority, manipulate, abuse, control with fear and greatness over others. They lord it over. No, no, no. That's, that's not what you are supposed to do. That is not what the church is supposed to be like. He says this, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave or bondservant of all. Verse 45, the well-known verse. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'll say that again. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. (laughs) The Son of Man, God in flesh, came not to to, to be served, but to serve. Paul says in Ephesians that husbands, you're, you're to come and literally lay down your life for your wife. Or are you coming asking your wife to serve you and get what you need? No, the opposite. Servant leaders, a leader in God's church, a leader in God's family, in a Christian marriage. This is someone who is willing to lay down their life for someone else. What is the entire law summed up in two things? Love God and love others as yourself. Are are we willing to come to a place and serve as a servant. This, this sense of giving of ourselves, that means, as Paul David Tripp talks about it, that, I'll read a quote here in a moment, he talks about service is ultimately a willingness to suffer. <laughs> Are you willing to suffer for other people that you love? 
Are you willing to serve by suffering for the bride of Christ? Are you willing to serve by upholding and being and guiding and leading and continuing the mission from Jesus Christ by leading, shepherding, serving, and suffering for the people of God so that the message of God would go forth, not your own platform? Come to be served. Leadership is something that is talked often. I talk with many different people about in today's culture. I don't know if it's just because it's so forefront in today's world of modern media and social media and platforms that can be bought. But there is, many would say, as I was listening to a podcast the other day, I was talking about there seems to be, maybe we're just more aware of it, of a leadership crisis among the church. I would just say generally, there's a leadership crisis among our world. Our political leaders, our leaders that we look to, our, our celebrities and people who influence our lives, they are not leading out of a place of service. There is no longer a service for the United States of America. We are these people who are gaining a platform for power and money, this sense of greatness, right? And among the church, that has influenced the church in such a way as well. And if we are not careful, if we do not have places of accountability, if the Spirit of God is not directing and guiding us, we are going to become just like that. We're, we're biblical church culture, biblical leadership culture is high on character. And it is low on charisma, and it is humble on competence. If I could switch it, modern leadership culture, what you see on a daily basis is high on charisma. It is, it is really, in a sense, low on character. And it is proud on competence. You will find out what I'm good at and how I'm better than you, and you need to follow me, right? Because I'm the greatest, the best, the fastest, the strongest. And look at me and all this attention that I can garner for myself. And character, well, you know, that's a, we'll look at that later. Nobody look over there in the corner, right? Move on over here. Biblical church leadership switches everything. Are you willing to be a servant? Is your character evidencing the fruit of the spirit? And are you willing to suffer for others on others' behalf? That is what we should be elevating in a place, in a culture. I love this from Paul David Tripp, and then I'll close in prayer. He says in his book, Lead, he says, Jesus' response, speaking of the Mark chapters we just read, he says, Jesus' response is at once wise and artful. He essentially says, yes, you've been called to be great. That's that yearning for greatness that these disciples had. He's saying it's not necessarily wrong. You've been called to be great. And by the pathway to greatness is not power and position. The pathway to greatness is servanthood. And in so doing, he turned the typical understanding of power, position, and rights of a leader on its head. Leaders who do not serve aren't actually leaders. They use their power and position and those that they have been called to lead to get for themselves what they think they deserve. True leaders don't think that the ministry they've been called to lead and those they have been called to lead belong to them. A true leader knows that people are not objects of his power and control, but the focus of his sacrifice and service. Every ministry leader carries the identity of servants. And any leader who begins to think of himself in different ways is in a spiritual danger and has abandoned the true character of his calling. That just hit me like a ton of bricks this week. 
Gentiles in the group, in the world, in the secular culture, will lord over others. Lord, keep our church from that. Let us be a place of humility, of service, of quietness, of the spirit of God working among us in the church, equally among us. For you are spiritually gifted. I have spiritual gifts. We are all called to use those gifts as one body, many members working together for the glory of God. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come before you and we ask God that you would be great in our eyes, that you would be central in our church you would be vital and critical for our spiritual life. God, help us to avoid the temptations that presented to us, to walk in your spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. God, that we would be a church, a culture, a people, a group that loves each other, forgives one another, that asks forgiveness from you, that seeks to encourage one another, hold each other accountable. And ultimately, a people who have a smile on their face because you are working among us because you are alive. You're alive, Lord. We praise you. We give you the glory. We lift up your name. We sing to you, God, because we are the church, the church of the living God. May you rest upon this place, empower us for your service, and guide us in the way you would have us to go. In Jesus' name we pray.